1840, after a five-year-long courtship, Robert Schumann, the composer, and the brilliant virtuoso pianist Clara Wieck were married. This was one of the most arduous, painful, desperate love stories in the history of classical music, full of extreme highs and lows, perfect for a romantic novel. Like most of the best rom dramas, it has a villain, a decided villain, a man called Friedrich Wieck, who was a great piano teacher, a great musician in his way, but probably the ultimate nightmare, pushy, possessive parent. His daughter, Clara, was his creation, you could tell. He looked on her the way that some composers look on their own work, his life's work, and he perfected her. He brought her up to the standard, obviously, that he wanted her to represent his own achievement. And at first, Schumann was one of his pupils, a favoured pupil, someone who he was quite close friends with. But when it became clear that Robert Schumann and Clara were becoming close, suddenly Wieck completely turned. He obviously felt that his life's work was threatened. There was a terrible protracted legal battle because Clara still wasn't old enough to marry of her own volition legally. She had to get her father's consent. And this lasted almost two years. There were all sorts of terrible allegations that Wieck made in public about Schumann in an attempt to get him discredited in court. For instance, that he was a brothel haunter, that he was dissolute, that he was a drunkard, that he took drugs, that he was unstable. At one stage, he actually grew so intemperate that the judge sent him to prison for 12 days, actually just to cool off. But eventually, on the 1st of August, 1840, consent was finally granted. But this was an extraordinary process and torture for both of them. And for Schumann himself, extremely prone to mood swings. In fact, there's a strong case for arguing that he was manic depressive. The whole process was agony. And he seems to have just about held himself together through all this by writing music. But interestingly enough, right in the middle of this trial process, these nearly two years of protracted, drawn-out misery for both of them, Schumann made a very significant change in musical focus. Up till about 1838-1839, he'd written virtually nothing but piano music. The piano was his own instrument. He obviously felt most comfortable with it. But at the same time, he felt very passionately that instrumental music was the way forward, not vocal music. This was where progress lay. His output is absolutely dominated by piano music in very much the same way that Chopin's was at the same time. But early in 1840, in the midst of the worst of this trial process, Schumann turned his attention to song. And following this, out came an astonishing flood of songs, around 150 songs in less than a year, which is quite an output. Sometimes it can seem, actually, as you listen to the music, that you can sense the ideas pouring out at a fantastic rate. The music captures this, or just about. This is a song from early on in the cycle, Dichterliebe, A Poet's Love where the words all just almost seem to tumble over each other. Die Rose, die Linde, die Taube, die Sonne, die liebt dich aus allen Liebesbäumen. Ich liebe sie nicht mehr, ich liebe alleine die Kleine, die Feine, die Reine, die Eine. Sie selber aller Liebe wohnt, ist Rose und Lilie und Taube und Sonne. Ich liebe alleine die Kleine, die Feine, die Reine, die Eine, die Eine.
Thank you to our baritone Horken Vramsmo for daring to start on that notorious tongue twister there. That's Di Rosa di Lilia, the rose, the lily, the dove, the sun. I loved them all once ecstatically, but now I love only you, the tiny, the dainty, the pure, the one. You can imagine this emotion just pouring out of this guy as he wrote these songs. Let's not forget at this stage our pianist, David Quigley, who, as you'll discover in the course of this evening, is much, much more than simply an accompanist in this cycle. Perhaps you can imagine a song like that tumbling out during one of Clara and Robert's rare moments of unclouded togetherness. They hardly had much opportunity to see each other during the trial because Wieck made desperate efforts to keep them apart. Or is there something just a little bit manic about that music? A mind moving too fast, in danger of overheating, as Schumann's often did, only to be followed sometimes by a plunge into fearful depths. You find this pattern again and again in Schumann's life. He pours out music, and suddenly it's as though he overheats and plunges into terrible depression, and in some years he writes nothing at all. The year 1844, for instance, there isn't a single work, and struggling his way out of that depression was very hard. Again, music was very important in that. And in this same cycle, Dichterliebe, you can sometimes sense that other side of Schumann, what it is to plunge into those depths, to be left in alone in fearful desolation, as in this song from rather later in the cycle. Thank you. 
I wept in a dream. I dreamt that you lay in your grave. I woke and still the tears streamed down my cheeks. That's the 13th song. It would have to be the 13th, in a way, of Dichterliebe. It's extraordinary how Schumann uses those breathless silences and then those skeletal, tiny, fragmentary hints of a funeral march in the piano. It's a truly chilling song. It's also rather striking. I was very intrigued to discover recently that Schumann suffered appallingly at certain stages of his life from insomnia, totally complete paralyzing lack of sleep. And there is something about that song, and particularly those silences at the end, reminds me of that kind of breathless stillness as you lie there awake, unable to sleep in the darkness. But it's also striking, isn't it, that the piano isn't just accompanying the voice. It's also adding a level of meaning of its own. And in this song, it's a level of black irony, because in some ways, the piano is doing quite the opposite of what the words seem to be telling us is happening. The poem talks of tears flowing. This image recurs. It appears three times. Yet the music seems to be frozen and held back and full of silences. Finally, towards the climax of that song, the phrases of the vocal line do begin to connect up, and you get that sense of reaching towards a climax. And we reach the climactic line of the poem. Strömt meine Tränenflut, there streamed my flood of tears. And that's the very moment where the, suddenly the music breaks off as though frozen completely in its tracks. Silences you really can cut with a knife there, aren't they? In fact, given this astonishing ability to respond so intensely musically to the meaning of words, it's rather surprised that Schumann hadn't considered writing song earlier. After all, he'd been a great pioneering admirer of Franz Schubert, the Austrian composer of an earlier generation, who in his very short life, he lived only 31 years, had managed to produce, among great quantities of other music, over 630 songs. But at the same time, Schumann also was a very literary man. He was hugely interested in poetry and the novel at the time. He was a very good writer. It was at some point in the 1930s that Schumann discovered the poetry of Heinrich Heine, born 1797, died 1856, rather longer life than Schumann, who was dead by the time he was 46. Heine is one of the greatest of the German Romantic poets, really a great creator, not just of poems, but of lyrics, of the kind of poetry that's particularly well-suited to being set to music. He's been much misunderstood in this country, particularly because of the way that most people approach his poetry through the settings by composers. His poetry can seem very saccharine on the surface of it, very emotive, very much intoxicated with the sweeter side of things. Yet actually, he's a very complicated writer with a strong sense of irony 
The irony usually follows quickly somewhere in the poetry. You could say that really that it's like honey that contains a teaspoonful of powdered glass. Somehow or other, kind is also very good at conveying an intensity of suffering, the pathology of love, you might say, often in very simple economical language. There's no doubt about it that in the first song we heard today, that tongue twister, that Heine is at the same time sharing in the excitement of this young lover whose feelings are bubbling over, and at the same time he's mocking it. He's mocking this person's overexcitedness, his overheated feeling. And Schumann, as we heard in the music, responds to that to perfection. It's no problem that, for instance, in order to set it, he cut and pasted Heine's words a bit. He's got the idea behind the poetry, and particularly this ironic dimension. And again, in Hab in Traum, he's caught that delicate hint in Heine's poem, all this talk about tears flowing, that there's something just a little bit sarcastic about this in Heine's poem, and Schumann has amplified that in a way that he makes it in a setting which resolutely refuses to flow, that keeps going off into those frozen silences. Schumann composed 20 songs to text by Heine in the space of about seven days at the end of May 1840. 16 of these songs were eventually to become the song cycle we know as Dichterliebe, a poet's love. The others remained like satellites without a planet to orbit. Neglected, yes, they remained neglected for a long time, but they can reveal extraordinary things too. And perhaps the most remarkable of these spare Heine settings, the settings that didn't quite make it into Dichterliebe, is called Mein Wagen rollet langsam. It has an extraordinary tempo marking for a start. Nach dem Sinn des Gesichts, after the sense of the poem, Schumann is very keen that the singer and the pianist focus in on the words of this song. So what are these words? Well, the first verse seems like a very beautiful, romantic, sweet, poetic German pastoral scene. My carriage rolls slowly through the joyous green woods, through valleys that blossom in the sun, and the piano has a lovely sort of leafy rolling figure that just descends gently in the right hand. And at first, as the singer talks, the poet talks about his carriage rolling along and enjoying this pastoral scenery, then the voice seems very happy to roll along with the piano. And then it gets a bit strange, because the next line, the poet tells us, I sit and dream of my beloved. Well, how, could, how pleasant in such circumstances to dream of the person you love. So surely you'd imagine the singer would continue to drift along lyrically with the movement of the carriage wheels. But no, it's quite different. Ich sitze und sehe und sehe und freue und that strange, broken, breathless quality there. It's rather surprising in the context, isn't it? 
And interestingly enough, when Schumann planned Dichterliebe originally with the 20 poem settings rather than the 16 he eventually used, this song appears to have been positioned so that it would occur just before that previous song we heard, Ich hab in Traum geweinet, with all those nightmare frozen silences. It would be interesting to hear them together, wouldn't it? Because you would get that sense maybe of this broken quality in this song looking forward to what was to come. However, this song stands in its own right, and why is Schumann doing this thing here? Why is he seemingly contradicting the sense of the words? Well, because he's neatly preparing for Heine's rather weird surprise, the moment where the carriage, you might say, rolls into the twilight zone. Three shadowy forms appear. They mock and pull faces and chuckle. The German's wonderfully expressive. Sie hüpfen und schneiden Gesichter so spüttig und doch so scheu. German can be so expressive sometimes when it comes to bizarre and strange emotions. And then, the poet tells us, they glide away and the piano is left to moves alone at the end. Da That long piano postlude at the end, the piano's left on its own for quite a long time, isn't he? It's almost like the pianist is trying, a mind trying to make sense of this weird shift of mood, this hallucination in the middle of this song. And that final little cadence at the end that we heard is surely a lovely, deft example, a delicate example of Schumann's irony. There's a dissonance reverberating. We hear it in the dark depths, then higher, then higher, but then comes the resolution. Even so, it's only up in the treble, and even then, there's something slightly tentative about it. Yes, it's neat, and at the same time, it leaves so many questions hanging in the air, doesn't it? A disturbing kind of mystery remains. 
Well, as I said, Mein Wagenruder Langsam was eventually not included in Dichterliebe, but that ending does illustrate one of Schumann's greatest innovations in the form of Lieder, Germanic Romantic Song, and that's the role of the piano as commentator, especially in these postludes. Often Schumann's postludes are very long, much longer than any other song composer before him. Now, he's inspired partly by the example of Schubert here, there are many masterful touches in Schumann's songs where the piano is just so much more than an accompanist, but Schumann takes it onto new levels, and we'll see it especially when we come to the end of this song cycle. There's a fabulous example of how Schumann uses the piano to comment on what the singer sings in the very first song of Dichterliebe, Im wunderschönen Monat Mai, in the wonderfully beautiful month of May. It tells, on the face of it, of a young lover, his feeling is breaking forth in the spring with the May blossom. It's a lovely sentiment, and the singer's melody really seems to capture this pretty kind of romantic imagery right from the start. Im Seems like a fairly simple romantic tune in a warm spring-like major key. But if we listen to the whole song now, it's quite short. Listen to the way the piano frames the singer's lines. The singer's lines may suggest innocent young love, but the piano seems to be hinting at something a bit more complicated. Voices, sentiments seem all smiles, but the piano has that kind of painful yearning quality. It ends there, doesn't it, on that unresolved seventh chord, almost like a kind of question mark. Even 200 years after that song was written nearly, 
it's still slightly surprising, isn't it? You want that chord to resolve in a conventional way. And all this extraordinary sense of the piano and the voice being in some kind of ironic relationship to each other continues as the story of Dichterliebe unfolds. Actually, when I talk about the story here, it's important to stress that the story is Schumann's own invention, however much he relies on Heine's poetry. Heine's published collection of lyrics contains 66 poems, all inspired by the experience of rejected love, but all very different. Schumann extracted 20 of these and then boiled them down, condensed them still further to 16, so that they tell a story, a sequence, which is probably one reason why Mein Wagen wrote Langsam had to go, because it didn't quite fit into his story scheme. What's the story? Well, it's one of the oldest in music. A story of love that at first seems to be reciprocated and then is rejected and the beloved goes off with somebody else. People are still writing songs about that today, aren't they? In fact, I was talking about a composer recently who said, really, it's the only subject for a decent song. So there you are. Schumann's own love story did eventually, of course, have a happy ending, but he still didn't know that in May 1840 at the time he wrote these songs. And it's quite clear that on one level, Dichterliebe provided an incredibly important form of an emotional release for him, somewhere where he could pour out all these feelings, these near pathological feelings he felt about the extreme ups and downs of his fate, of his relationship to Clara. It obviously threatened his balance completely. There were times when he was showing signs of being close to breakdown. So it's working through perhaps that experience of the pathology of love and loneliness through Dichterliebe that helped him maintain his balance. But perhaps also Heine's irony was important too because it allows Schumann in a sense to stand aside and observe himself at the same time as pouring out all that intense feeling. Do you remember that tongue-twisting, manic-excited song we heard at the beginning, Die Rosa, Die Lilia, Die Taube, Die Zona? Schumann's setting really underlies that feeling that something's not quite right about this piece, that it's overheated emotionally. And that's underlined, but in a humorous kind of way, by the tiny piano postlude at the end. The piano repeats these rapid rhythms in its murkiest lower regions. And then there's an almost comically tidy little cadence at the end that kind of is so neat, it's almost impossible. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a cliche now. It would have done in Schumann's time. Schumann's using a cliche to give you that sense of slightly ironic, detached, wry observation of the emotional state he's evoked so tellingly in the song before. That's the third song in the cycle. In Wunderschön at Monat Mai that we just heard complete a moment or two was the first song in the cycle. The fourth is an example of Schumann picking up on Heine's sweet, sour irony, that scorpion-tailed quality, and anticipating it. There's a line at the beginning of the poem. When I look into your eyes, all my sorrow and pain disappear. But when I kiss your mouth, then I become wholly well. Now, the last line of that verse in German, so werde ich ganz und gar gesund, what we don't get the sense of as English speakers is what a prosaic, cliched little phrase that is. You can imagine in an older, more innocent Germany, two honest burghers meeting each other in the street and one of them saying, wie geht's dir, Hansel? And the other one, ganz und gar gesund, Gott sei Dank. It's really one of those kind of nice weather for ducks sort of, you know, mustn't grumble kind of comments. And the way Schumann sets that line, ganz und gar gesund, it really underlines the fact that, well, it's a cliche, it's ironic. There's something odd about this in context. 
It's almost like a hymn, isn't it? It's kind of impossibly pious Victorian hymn style of writing. And in context, coupled with that really banal expression, it, you can see how this is Schumann responding to irony in the poetry. And it's beautifully contrasted only a moment or two later in the song when Schumann comes to this more complicated emotional line. But when you say, I love you, then I weep bitterly. The juxtaposition of those two moments, one extremely poetic, the other very solid and prosaic, almost cliched, is slightly strange, slightly uncanny, and in context, it's quite unsettling. There's too much in this cycle for me to illustrate every single song, otherwise we'd be here for God knows how long. We can certainly highlight the main points in Schumann's story and how both the voice and the piano enhance its telling. There's an exquisite, fragile little song that follows that one we've just sampled. I will dip my soul into the chalice of the lily, full of words like quivering and palpitating. You can certainly hear how Schumann gets that effect in the song. Then comes a massive change of mood. In the Holy River Rhine, the great cathedral of Cologne is reflected. Powerful, massive sounds, a strong suggestion of the music of the Baroque era, the religious music of Schumann's beloved J.S. Bach, are all present in this music, but transformed into true romantic scene painting. Im Rhein, im Then the words start getting seriously weird. The poet tells us, flowers and cherubs in the cathedral float about the portrait of our lady. Her eyes, her lips, her cheeks are just like those of my beloved. get the impression this isn't just a normal young man in love. I've asked the younger female members of this audience if your boyfriend came up to you and said, I've just been looking at a picture of Our Lady in Manchester Cathedral and she looked just like you. Um, yes, if you get the, if the girl decides at this point in the cycle that this is the point maybe to make a rapid retreat, I'm not sure I blame her. 
And of course, that is what happens next. Schumann doesn't tell this in the narrative form, but he makes it perfectly clear from the next song, which begins with the ultimate ironic statement, Ich grolle nicht, I bear no grudge, like hell he doesn't. Eternally lost love, and however much you may sparkle in your diamonds, there's no light in the hard darkness of your heart. Here's the outpouring of a wounded heart, a rejected lover. And however much you may sympathize with the girl and condone her for deciding to get away from this bloke, it does result in one of the great romantic leader tunes. And from there, the song builds up to a mighty climax as the poet depicts his image of a serpent that devours the girl's heart. Tremendous upward rising vocal phrase, but we'll spare Hawken for that for the performance, I think. It requires a bit of stamina. There's another gorgeous, delicate, nervous, and slightly unbalanced little song next. If the little flowers knew how my heart is wounded, they would weep with me to heal my heart. Or is this just too sweetly self-piteous? Again, Schumann suggests maybe there's something wrong here. But bitterness wells up again in the ninth song. Das ist ein Flöten und Geigen. Flutes and fiddles are playing. There's a wedding. It's hers. She's marrying someone else. And again, the piano adds so much to this song. What the piano provides is a kind of crazy waltz, a breathless waltz. The right hand never stops. It's kind of nightmarishly manic, with a sort of dance band accompaniment, a throbbing accompaniment, which is almost like the throbbing of veins, an insane drumming inside the, the jilted lover's head. As you'll hear when you hear the whole song, there is something incredibly relentless and breathless about it. It sounds okay enough at the beginning, but when you hear the whole song, there's again that feeling that something is quite wrong, something nightmarish about this. That demented waltz effect clearly had a powerful effect on another later composer, Gustav Mahler. There's a song from the collection of folk settings called Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Boy's Magic Horn, which has the unpromising title of St. Anthony of Padua's Sermon to the Fishes. We'll hear a little bit of it now, and you'll hear how much it obviously owes, even though it's an orchestral song, to the example of that Schumann song we just sampled. Thank you. 
Antonius zur Predigt, die Kirche bittlich. Er geht zu den Flüssen und predigt den Fischen. Sie schlagen mit den Schlitzen, im Sonnenschein glänzen, im Sonnenschein, Sonnenschein glänzen. Sie glänzen, sie glänzen, glänzen. Die Karpfen mit Bogen sein Wall hier zogen, Freude aufriesen, sich zuerst begließen. Now, how many of you know Mahler's second symphony, the Resurrection Symphony? One or two of you. You recognize the music there? Because it's the basis, he made that song, the basis of the scherzo of the third movement of the Resurrection Symphony, where it's extended even longer and that running, restless, breathless quality goes on for page after page, for minute after minute, far longer than the song. And when you learn that in Mahler's program note that he originally wrote for this symphony, third movement, he was thinking of a mad, delirious waltz scene from which the spectator recoils with horror and disgust. Obviously, it's exactly the same kind of imagery as Schumann had in mind in that bizarre, demented, in breathless waltz figure in Dichterliebe. So there you are, Schumann has provided imagery which Mahler was very happy to take and run with half a century later. The next song in Dichterliebe is a wonderful example of Schumann's ability to express complete emotional desolation. There's a slow, liquid figure for the piano. And you'll notice that the right hand is ever so slightly off the beat, slightly behind the beat. It seems to limp slightly, or maybe it's more like a slightly missed heartbeat, something like that. In this song, the young man hears a song his beloved once sang, and his heart, he tells us, wants to burst from the stress of savage pain. You can hear the stress in the way the piano pushes against the beat harder when you actually get to that phrase in the song. It's the second phrase of this extract. So will die Brust zerspringen from wildem Schmerzensdrang. The pressure of pain, Schmerzensdrang. When we get to that point in the song, you'll hear how the piano's offbeat accents become harder, that sense of stress from within. Nicely done, David. Enjoyed your offbeat stresses there very much indeed. We'll move on a bit in the song, can't because time is running out, but we've also, because we've heard the 13th song, Ich hab in Traum geweinet, it'll make even more sense, as I've said, in context. Still, there's one song very near to the end, the penultimate song, which does sometimes cause some people puzzlement. 
It's a jaunty-sounding little song about fairy tales and the wonderful images and sensations they evoke, and at first it sounds like a complete change of emotional tack. Some people have argued that maybe Schumann could have dropped this song along with Mein Wagen Ruhl at Langsam. It does seem to not to fit at first into this emotional context of Dichterliebe. But this does seem to have a point when you look at the words, because this is a song about romantic escapism, about searching for happiness in a world of dreams, which is what this desperate, fragile, disturbed, young love obsessive has been doing all along throughout this cycle. And he does so often in romantic poetry of this time, you wonder if he's really fallen in love with this girl at all, or if it's more a case of falling in love with love for its own sake. Could this song actually represent the dawning of some form of self-recognition, some form of self-understanding? There's a very strong suggestion at the end, which again is verily tellingly underlined by Schumann's little piano postal, his summary at the end. The last verse, the words are, Oh, that land of joy, I see it often in dreams, yet when the morning sun rises, it vanishes like pointless foam. Again, the piano does so much more than just wrap up the song. There's a feeling of some kind of commentary going on on what we've just heard. And this suggestion that this young man may be on the dawn of self-realization, self-knowledge, is confirmed by the next and last song. And let's remember that the ordering is Schumann's, not Heiner's. The text of this song is very interesting. Those old and evil songs, the evil tormenting dreams, let's put them in a huge coffin and bury them. There's a massive accompaniment here suggesting resolution. But also note that the piano's left hand strongly recalls that throbbing accompaniment to that tormented waltz we had in that bitter depiction of the beloved's wedding. (laughs) 
I wonder if that's a delicately planted subliminal clue as to what Schumann thinks the evil old songs the poet is thinking of really are, the songs of bitterness and delusion. That could well be a suggestion in this music. So is this resolution at last the road back to healthy, earthy sanity? Well, Schumann's music again hints that it may not be quite as simple as that. The poet tells us that he imagines 12 giants, each one stronger than St. Christopher in Cologne Cathedral by the Rhine, that image of Cologne Cathedral and the Rhine again. He imagines the giants picking up the coffin with the old bad songs and his lost love in, taking the coffin out to sea. And do you know why the coffin must be so huge and heavy, he tells us. I've put in it all my love and all my suffering. Well, then comes the most wonderful thing, not so much a piano postlude this time as an entire song without words on its own, for the piano alone, a song. You can imagine here not so much an, a leaden, huge coffin as a lily, a flower, a delicate object being carried away by the current of the River Rhine, bobbing on the surface. Again, we have more delicately placed offbeat rhythms on the piano as this flower, or whatever it is that symbolizes this young man's traumatic experience of love, vanishes from our sight.
will leave the full effect for the performance. As you can see there from just that sample, it justifies my statement that David Quigley here is so much more than an accompanist in this cycle, certainly part of an equal partnership with our baritone Hawken Vramsmoor. So is this a return to sanity at the end? Is it a resolution? Is it even something close to a happy ending? Or is there still a suggestion in that music that the tender longing is still there? Is it redemption? Is it resolution? Or does the piece end with a kind of question mark? Is suffering inevitably connected with love? Those are all things you can ponder for yourself when we hear the complete Dichterliebe in a moment or two. But before we hear the complete Dichterliebe, I just wondered if there's anybody who would like to ask anything or make a point. Uh, if so, would you put your hand up and hopefully somebody, ah yes, will appear with a microphone. Anybody, anything they'd like to ask at all? Um, are there any musical themes which tie all of the uh, songs together, or is it just a story? It's not so much a question of motives. People have tried to analyse Dichterlieber and say there are light motifs that run throughout the cycle. It's subtler than that, I think. Schumann wasn't so much interested in establishing a kind of motivic connection between the songs, but you can certainly hear echoes forwards and backwards. They tend to be more like echoes of character than actually echoes of theme, like that left-hand business we heard that ties the old and wicked songs to the waltz theme, dum, cha, 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 or the silences and the broken rhythms that would have connected Mein Wagen Roulette Langsam with Ich habe in Traum geweinet if he'd kept it. Those are the sort of connections that appeal to Schumann. He's, he's a very literary composer, and he tends to think in terms of sound images rather than in terms of abstract musical connections, if that makes sense to you. But there are definite musical hints. That last post-loop, for instance, is very much connected with the 12th song, which we haven't sampled, which it almost quotes. So there again is another interesting level of meaning. But Schumann never does anything like that without there being some level of emotional or interpretative meaning connection with it. He's not one of those composers like Brahms who loves knitting motifs together and making themes do new things almost for their own abstract musical sense. And that's interesting because Brahms, of course, was a great admirer and follower of Schumann, and Schumann was his mentor as a youth. But it's more about what the music associates, I think, and more an emotional connection between the songs, an imagery connection than, than themes. Somebody else wanted to ask a question as well. Yeah, at the back here. I remember studying these songs in the sixth form at uh, school a good few years ago now and being deeply affected by them. But uh, do you think, uh, here we are in a boys' school, Manchester Grammar School in Manchester, um, what's the ideal age to actually sing and perform this cycle? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's very difficult because this does seem to be a song very much about youthful love, intense infatuation, and I can remember to be embarrassingly honest, being a similar sort of situation myself at university once. But actually, it's taken me a long time to appreciate Schumann. I've come to Schumann much later in life. And I think, well, there is a fantastic recording by the young Dietrich Fischer-Diskau, for example. But there are older singers, too, who've found that kind of insight. After all, the great thing about an actor is the ability to enter somebody else's persona. And I think so long as you have the vocal quality, then a singer can certainly do it. You don't have to be young. In fact, when it comes to understanding the ironic side of Schumann's treatment of the music, maybe it's better to be a bit older or at least have passed through an infatuation or two in order to get that kind of perspective on it. I don't know, it'd be interesting to have the general reaction afterwards from people here because we have quite an interesting diversity of age groups here in the audience. 
interestingly, I mentioned Fischer Disco. There's one thing I've just learned the other day from my producer, which is fantastic. Dietrich Fischer Disco, a great German baritone, made this fabulous recording in the 1950s, had amazing breath control and was also, as we're told singers shouldn't be, a great smoker. I don't know whether he's given up, he's still with us. But on one occasion, apparently, he sung Die Rosa, Die Lilia, that tongue twister we heard at the beginning of the program. He took a huge drag on his cigarette and sang the whole song in one breath, apparently, of which smoke continually poured out. That's stylish. Alas, health and safety would not allow Hawken to do that, even if he were willing, I don't think. <laughs> Has anybody else anything they'd like to ask before? Yes, one more question here, I think. Thank you. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, J.S. Bach um, and Schubert were both major influences on Schubert. How far do you think that this song cycle in particular has been influenced by other composers, particularly the two I mentioned? Well, certainly he was influenced by... I mean, Bach is the great master of counterpoint, of different voices moving in, in counterpoint to each other, polyphony, the idea that you don't simply have a tune and accompaniment texture, that you have different lines that give the impression of different movements, sometimes moving apart, sometimes moving together. Schumann takes the whole idea of counterpoint onto a totally new level in the sense that he also has the piano counterpointing the expression of the voice in some of the way that we've actually expressed this. Sometimes, as in that song about the Cathedral of the Rhine, he even imitates the sound of a Baroque overture, da-dum, 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 very typical Bach or Handelian kind of overture. He was also, I think, hugely stimulated, as I said, by how Schubert showed that the piano could do much more than just accompany the voice. I mean, there's a fantastic example if you ever come across Schubert's great song cycle, Winterreise, Winter Journey, which is again about rejected love and also about a lover who you think may have something a little bit uh, pathological about him and begin to sympathize with the woman for rejecting him, I think, after about song number four. But at the end of the first part is the song called Frühlingstraum, the dream of spring, which begins very happily in A major. At the end of it, the singer asks the question, when shall I see my beloved again? When shall I hold her in my arms? And the piano responds with this grim, low A minor chord. Could you give us one, David? And when you hear it in the song, it's wonderful how the piano seems to answer the voice's question. When shall I hold my beloved again in my arms? Piano, never. <laughs> yes, thank you. It's a step from that to Chopin's famous funeral march, isn't it? Uh, another composer who was obviously a huge influence on this, a composer that Schumann adored, was Beethoven, who couldn't touch a form without transforming it almost out of recognition. And Beethoven had created a beautiful song cycle called Andiferna Geliebte, To the Distant Beloved. What Beethoven does, which actually is even more radical in some ways than Schumann, is he links the songs. He has them flow one into the next. And at the end, he has one little phrase that recalls the very first song of the cycle. And Schumann was obsessed with this phrase, this phrase which accompanies the lines, take, oh, take these songs I offer. And he put it in many, many of his pieces, a kind of coded message to Clara, who was playing his music even when she couldn't actually see him. So she'd come across these little references to this song and know what Schumann was secretly telling her. But again, as so often, I'm reminded of what Stravinsky said. Stravinsky, one of the most original composers of the 20th century, said, a truly great composer doesn't imitate, he steals. And the point is that a really great composer like Schumann can steal ideas right, left, and center, and they sound like Schumann. They don't sound like anybody else. You can pull apart these things and say, yeah, that's so-and-so's influence, that's so-and-so's influence, but in the end, it's all pure Schumann. 
So it's up to you what you hear in this music. Anyway, it's now over to our performers to introduce us, I think, complete to the world evoked by Robert Schumann and the story he tells on so many levels in this masterly song cycle, Dichterliebe, A Poet's Love. Will you welcome, please, again, our performers, Horken Vramsmo and David Quigley. <laughs> 